This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Traders, this is Eddie Horn from Top Step, and this is Limit Up. This is where we talk with traders, market participants, and trading psychologists to help you improve your trading. We've had a lot of new listeners join over the past few months, so we're taking a couple weeks to replay some of our favorite episodes. This week, we're replaying our conversation with Jack Schwager, the market wizard whisperer himself. And I hope you enjoy this interview with Jack Schwager. <laughs> It's a complete honor and an envy for many to introduce my guest, Jack Schwager, author, trader, and uh, I guess you could say hero to many. Now, Jack is recognized in the industry as an expert in futures and hedge funds. Uh, he is the author of a number of widely acclaimed financial books. Mr. Schwager is one of the founders of FundCedar, FundCedar.com, a platform designed to find undiscovered trading talent worldwide and connect unknown successful traders with sources of investment capital. And I'd like to say, uh, Jack, welcome to our Limit Up podcast. Oh, thank you, Eddie. Glad to be here. Now, Jack, let's start out. Let, let's go back a bit. The very beginning of your career. Now, you're filled with knowledge. You're an icon, an icon of knowledge. And what... I want to know, and what probably a lot of listeners want to know is um, how you got there. Uh, what was was it a passion? Was it a hobby? Where did it begin, Jack? Well, it it happened it happened by chance, really. So um, uh, I was out of uh, graduate school for a degree in economics and just really looking for an analytical job. And it uh, to not go into the long story, but uh, just bottom line. Uh, Put an ad in the paper. I got tired of dealing with uh, with uh, employment agencies. Uh, after about two weeks, you know, uh, I had a short uh, short patient span, like I always have had. Right. So uh, I, I tried to take things in my hand. Back in those days, you could put the New York Times had a help position wanted, not help wanted, a position wanted section. And I put in a short ad, just you know, saying uh, uh, you know, graduate degree, Brown. Uh, minor, you know, major economics, minor math, uh, looking for an analytical job, period. You know, like a, whatever the minimum was, uh, how many words there was allowed, which was less than, uh, which was less than the, the original tweet uh, limit. Um, so, um, uh, I got, that led to a number of calls, one, only one legitimate call. And that legitimate call ended up to my getting a job as a commodity research analyst. Um, and that position actually, the position I took was a position being vacated by Michael Marcus, who ended up right. years later being chapter one in the first Market Wizards book. Uh, that's how we met. I was taking the job. He was leaving to, in, quote, in quotes, become a trader. Uh, he, he was very successful in becoming a trader, obviously. Uh, but So that's how I got. So I fell into it really knowing absolutely nothing. I knew nothing about futures. I knew nothing about trading. Um, I had never thought about a career in the markets. Uh, it was just that's the job sounded good, uh, interesting, uh, not not financially <laughs> remunerative, but it sounded interesting. Mm -hmm. It was analytical. And uh, I was in a job for, you know, a couple of weeks and realized, hey, you know, uh, the research we were putting out, at least in futures, was, was not terribly good. 
And I said, well, you know, boy, it shouldn't be easy to to uh, excel here. Uh, this has nothing to do with trading. This is just a matter of, you know, just the analysis. And um, that's how I got it. And so once I was doing market analysis, that got me interested in trading. And uh, and that's basically how it began. Now, Jack, you've developed into a serious student of the markets, and I think we all try to follow that uh, that guideline. In addition to Market Wizard's book, uh, you wrote Complete Guide to Futures Markets, Getting Started in Technical Analysis and many other books. Now, as you've learned the, uh, the, the the trials, tribulations, the positives, the negatives, what goes into good trading? And, and what's a safe, simple, and successful formula for trading? Well, there is no there is no formula. In fact, the the concept that there is a formula is actually, I think, very misguided. So, what I always tell people, and this is, you know, this I've seen this, you know, through all these decades of interviewing traders repeatedly. Good traders don't have, you know, didn't find a formula like reading a book or something like that, whether my book or any other book. They basically got. I mean, they they get information from different sources. They may learn from different people, but ultimately. They, they develop their own methodology. And there are two, two kind of core elements to any successful trader. One, they've developed a core method, their own methodology, which, um, which has some edge. You know, it doesn't have to be a large edge, but it has to have some edge. If there's no edge, then there's no way you can win over the long term. And secondly, they've learned risk management. So I'd say those are the two essential ingredients. And, uh, uh, so you have to develop you know, your own success, your own methodology that has some sort of edge. And I don't care if it's purely fundamental, purely technical, uh, some combination of the two, short term, long term, futures trading, stock trading, you know, give me a million different variations. I, I don't care that any of them could work as long as it's kind of what what is right for you, what would you gravitate towards uh, and find works and and you've combined with, with, with uh, money management. And the approaches are totally, totally different. I mean, you know, some of the fundamental guys I've interviewed uh, uh, have complete disdain for chart analysis, never used it, think it's uh, just a bunch of nonsense. Right. And the technical, some of the te pure technical guys I've interviewed, uh, you know, uh, talk about how they just lost money on fundamentals and finally made money, to, uh, a lot of money trading uh, technicals. Uh, and there's people who combine the two. You know, it's like somebody like a Kovner who's who's heavily fundamental and could talk to you, um, you know, when I talk, it could have discussed the the uh, intricacies of the economies of any developed nation and probably some undeveloped ones. And uh, and also, uh, but he would also look at charts, you know, whether he uh, talked about them. Well, he, he did talk about it to some extent, but he basically used both. So uh, it doesn't really make a difference as long as it's right for you. You could take somebody, uh, we took somebody like Rogers, who's, uh, uh, who's you know, just pure long-term fundamentals, uh, give, him, give him charts, and it's only, first of all, he's not going to pay attention to it, but if you ever tried using it, he, he you know, would be negative. So uh, you have to find your own approach. And, and again, the money management I come back to, because most, especially novice traders don't really understand this, that 
it's not so much the trading methodology that's absolutely critical to trading survival, but it's the money management. Yeah, I have to agree 100% with you. And, you know, with the management, management is so important. Uh, you need to not only manage your account, but you have to manage yourself. You have to be the boss and you have to make the right decisions. And sometimes it's really tough. And sometimes you've got to ask your question, uh, ask yourself questions and have answers and uh, proceed forward. Now, uh, you mentioned the edge and I had an interview, uh, did a podcast with Blair Hull, and that was something that he put out in front as this is very important. You know, he had the advantage, the edge, something that uh, would only give him a green light. And it wasn't very seldom. It was very rare. So it wasn't a uh, um, a situation where, you know, just one after another, you know, uh, we, they talk about the the one trade, the sniper trade, one trade, wait all day for it, take advantage of that. Now, Having the edge, you talk to a lot of people, you talk to uh, a lot of successful traders. Um, has this edge evolved over years, or are we going back and taking that edge and just bringing it through trading history, saying that, you know what, it's plain and simple. Uh, if you don't understand this, you're in the wrong business. Well, it's not so much evolved as it depends. Well, it has in some sense. I mean, certain. you take somebody like uh, Ed Thorpe, um, who was probably the longest interview, at least the longest written interview I, I had in any of the books. Um, and he went through many phases, but he, he kind of discovered his, you know, so his edge was, he was the first guy, you know, he, he mathematically, he, he came up with uh, an equivalent uh, of the uh, Black Shoals option pricing model. Right. Uh, many years, quite a few years before that article ever came out. So for a period, and he didn't, he didn't publish it, uh, even though he had a math degree. He just, you know, PhD. He he wasn't interested in, in publishing. He was interested in using it. So for for many years there, he was kind of just printing money because he was probably one of the only people in the world who actually knew how to price options. So that was a great advantage, you know. Um, but uh, anyway, as option markets became more uh, efficient, uh, then uh, he ultimately gravitated. He did statistical arbitrage in the air and involved that. Uh, uh, convertible arbitrage. He basically kept on finding different, different financial uh, approaches where the market was was uh, mispriced or had some. See, he kind of figured out that the, the market was not pricing things correctly, and he found multiple ways in his career how to do it. So that's kind of an example of somebody personally evolving it. And and of course, it also is the market's evolving because as as these techniques are discovered, some of them. They get they get arbitraged away. That's in that case. But it, in other cases, if it's somebody who's just inherently um, a good trader, um, that's that's kind of that's a personal thing. That's yeah. not something that gets arbitraged away. Right. So that goes back to patience and discipline, which is something that uh, you know, those are elements. There are many elements of it, but certainly patience. You know, this patience uh, and discipline are certainly two critical ones. Uh, you know, patience to as you know, like. You use the term sniper trade. Yeah, the idea is to wait for the right trade uh, and not to be tempted to trade just for the sake of trading, but to wait until things are really set up exactly right so the probabilities are in your favor. And it's also patience to stay with a trade, um, which is difficult to do. You know, people, when they're right, are tempted to take a profit. And uh, to really make a lot of money on a trade, you've got to stay with it for for, for a length of time and uh uh, some of the traders who really made a lot of money have been able to do that. Okay. Now, uh, Jack, what have you recognized as one of the biggest market evolutions? Taking a look at the big picture. 
Well, I mean, it's hard to ignore the computer, right? I, I, I started in the business when there were no even laptops, right? So we go from, we go from, you know, no computers at all. I mean, there were IBM mainframes, which took up a, which took up a, a whole sized room and, uh, oh, yeah. you had to do punch cards. I mean, but you go back to the early days. I mean, literally that was the state of the, uh, of computers at that, at that stage. And you go from that where, where just anybody can have tremendous computing power at their fingertips for a couple of thousand bucks. And, uh, uh, so it's, it's, you know, and of course then you have the quant shops who have massive computing power. So that I guess is the, is the biggest change. And what that does is, um, that opens up lots of strategies which would have been impossible to execute because they just required massive computing power, which didn't exist. So the very so the very emergence of of computing power uh, itself leads to strategies which which were impossible. Let's say if you go back uh, to my to my starting days, um, that also also the fact uh, that kind of leads to uh, certain things becoming obsolete more quickly uh, if they're purely quant based, and so though, so it does change the nature of the markets, but some of the so many underlying things don't change because markets, bottom line, are still driven by human emotions. Right. And so you still get bubbles and you still get, you know, busts and, you know, you get prices, markets overshooting in both directions. And you still get all of these things because they're part of human nature. And as long as it's humans trading markets, uh, that part is still there. And that leads to certain opportunities. And um, also human nature has certain weaknesses, which means that most people will lose money. Um, but people who learn to learn the, the weaknesses of, of human nature um, and deal with it uh, have an advantage. Right. Yeah. When I was on the trading floor, I think uh, beginning of my career, the only computers we had there were the uh, computers for time and sales. Uh, and then, you know, it started to evolve where we had electronic trading, uh, circled around the S&P pit. And, you know, the open outcry was like, how are these guys going to be able to trade? Now, it, the, the shoe's on the other foot. And, uh, you know, with all the information we have in front of us now, it's, you know, we are trading. We are trying to, uh, uh, sell the high, buy the low, but uh, there's just so much information out there right now. Now, Jack, you're one of the founders of fund cedar f-u-n-d-s-e-e-d-e-r.com well now we share a belief that a good trader can be found anywhere so first of all it, to, to, I, I don't ever take credit for what what is mine so it wasn't my idea um the uh the, the company was founded by three partners myself uh, emmanuel valari who's the ceo and james bibbings um, uh, who's, uh, the chief operating officer. Anyway, um, but it was Emmanuel Bellari's, uh, he was the one who had the original idea. And, uh, when he told me about it, we, I, I met him because I was advising a, uh, a fund, a multi-manager fund for ADM financial services. And he was with them and uh, had a subsidiary of them. And that's how we knew each other. And my, my advisory firm, which I was with then, which is a London based firm, uh, got a, got bought out, got acquired by a by a merchant bank in in the UK. Uh, I decided to leave at that point. I was the only U, uh, U.S. employee anyway. And uh, but so um, uh, this this uh, this multi manager thing that we were doing 
in on the future side was my baby anyway. And so I maintained a relationship with Emmanuel and then ADM. And sort of that's how we knew each other. And one the one conference we were at, he, he pitched this idea. And the idea was, uh, you know, what do you think about it? I've got this idea. And the idea was, uh, why, why not create a, a, a web-based uh, uh, center, you know, center where, you know, traders from across the globe could, you know, have their uh, their trader accounts linked to and verified and uh, and then that could be a source of finding trading talent and uh, and then one could connect that trading talent with with investors looking for emerging trading uh, talent. Um, the idea is that really we have evolved the whole now I say we the financial industry has evolved to a point where almost Almost all the money or a vast majority of money goes to a very small number of very large hedge funds. And if you're a trader, you know, if you, especially if you're not, if you're not from the US or UK, you know, or a couple of other countries, um, and no matter how good you are, um, you're not going to find, you're not going to have a chance in the world to, to get any allocations. So I'll give you, you know, we've had signups from, um, from 120 countries. I, I, I wouldn't have guessed that there are traders in 120 countries, but we've had people register right. 120 countries. Uh, and I'll give you an example. And I've, I've been interviewing, I've been looking at and kind of interviewing some of the ones which are really standing out. So this is one track record and uh, just phenomenal. And, and I look, by the way, we can get into this. Uh, I don't want to go into this tangent now. We can pick it up uh, a little bit later. But I look at return risk, not return. And so there's... Um, you know, a lot of guys there with really, really good, you know, return risk numbers. I, I don't particularly use the sharp ratio, but so but most people are familiar with the, what a, you know a sharp ratio is. So, so let's say we're talking sharp ratios of two or three, even though four, even. So, um, but but I'm looking at it through different metrics. Anyway, so we uh, so like one of these traders I'm talking to, just a you know five year record, pretty not only just good returns, but just so smooth. And the reason we know it's real is because. These these accounts were getting the, the numbers not from the trader, we're getting it from the broker. So um, uh, so we got a verified track record, uh, uh, just like one of those mountain charts. I, so I, the number of ch- actually traders have things like that. But so uh, this one is like a great example. Uh, and speaking to the, the fellow was basically managing a hotel uh, desk, not man, you know, a hotel clerk basically. Up to the had a passion for the market, started trading seven eight years ago. Uh, with a small amount of money, he's built it up to a couple hundred thousand. Nice. Guys located in the Czech Republic, uh, no real education. I mean, you know, I don't didn't finish the equivalent of college here, um, but yet he's developed and he's developed this trading methodology, which is I won't say more than uh, based on uh, trading on earnings, and he's figured out a, a, a patterns in earnings that are predictive. And that's what's all he trades. And uh, so he doesn't trade that many times, you know, for each he trades large cap stock. But he's got this magnificent record. And some kind of Czech Republic trading $200,000, which he started with 30 or something. And uh, no real education. Uh, you know, a guy like that wouldn't have, he wouldn't have, you know, a chance, uh, uh, you know, of, of ever getting any allocation. So uh, the, yeah, that's a perfect illustration. So the, the, the premise is, there are lots of good traders. When I say lots, I mean a number, not a percentage. The percentage of good traders out of all traders is tiny. But if you've got if you've got hundreds of thousands or even millions of traders, you don't need a large percentage to have a lot of good traders. And and those most of those traders won't have ever have a chance of ever getting an allocation, no matter how good they are. 
They won't get anybody to pay attention to them, look at them or whatever. And the idea of Fundseeder is, hey, they can go on, they can link their account, they become visible, and they have a chance of a uh, they have a chance of getting actually allocations. And so, uh, which is done through, I should say, uh, uh, for, the, 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 for legal reasons, that we have a separate company, Fundseeder Investments, which is the company that has the registrations and does the, you know, which is the one which does the investments. Fundseeder itself, Fundseeder Technologies, is basically a trader side that has all the analytics. It's what we use as our databases where we can find traders, but the actual allocations uh, occur in a completely separate company for, you know, for compliance and legal reasons, which would, uh, which is Fundseeder Investments. All right now. Transitioning, I, I, you know, coming from the trading floor, uh, I was lucky enough to transition into electronic. There's a lot of traders in the open outcry that uh, just couldn't do it electronically and uh, had a, had a very hard time and, and are not in the business anymore. Now, um, for fund seekers, what type of traders is fund seekers looking for? Is it yeah, so performance I, or risk adjusted returns? Sure. Sure. So, for, you know, let, let me just uh, uh, just for people looking for the site, it's fun cedar like uh, like seeding a crop. So uh, uh, F-U-N-D-S-E-E-D-E-R dot com. Uh, so what we're looking, well, actually, we're pretty as long as it's liquid, liquid. We're not looking for, you know, we're not looking for people doing, uh, you know, illiquid type of uh, you know, credit transactions or stuff like that. But anybody trading, you know, futures, FX, uh Liquid stocks, uh, you know, any of that. Uh, now, as far as what's going to push them to the top, we we have our own proprietary score called the FS score. Uh, that I can't even explain it in shorthand because it's a complex. There's a lot of stuff going on. It's a return risk measure. It will uh, it will take into consideration the shape of the of the return distribution curve. It will try to identify um, accounts which are vulnerable to tail risk. Uh, it will take into account the length of trades, um, so it's a fairly complex, uh, complex uh, number. But that is the that is the key number that uh, determines the rankings in the leaderboard. And we have something called the FS index, which is the top five percent of traders based on that FS score. Now, as far as uh, well, we have all the return risk metrics like Sortino, Sharp. Uh, I've got in my own measure, which I like a lot, which is which I call which is the gain to pain ratio. Uh, and I should add that all our da- our data is based on daily data, so it's a lot more meaningful than typical track records, which are monthly data. So we apply these statistics to daily data. So if you're looking at you know five years of daily data or whatever it might be based on return risk measures, you know, well that's no guarantee of future performance, but it does give you a really good insight. Uh, to uh, that trader's uh, return to risk, and we also have things like underwater charts that uh, you know you can see the traders, all the traders' drawdowns in graphic form. Uh, but a lot of emphasis on return to risk. Uh, we also have, of course, cumulative return, but uh, or an average annual return. I personally never look at those independently. I always look at the return risk numbers because um, uh, that's all that really matters. I can always. My attitude from my, now putting on my allocation hat is, let's say, if I'm an allocator for a multi-manager fund, I would basically be sizing the allocations based upon the risk anyway. So if somebody, so to me, there's no difference. Somebody makes 40% and has, let's say, whatever risk metrics they say has a, a risk of 2x, and somebody making uh, 
uh, 20% having a risk of 1x and somebody making 10% having a risk of half x, those are all equivalent to me because you know, I'm going to size the allocations accordingly and they'll all have the same return and the same risk. So uh, in that simplified example. So I'm only looking at return to risk. Uh, if somebody has a has low, um, you know, very low risk and you know, low return, you know, moderate returns. I don't care. I can I can leverage that trader or not leverage or allocate more to them uh, and get this get a higher return. And if somebody has a high high risk and high return, I'm going to allocate less, and so it'll end up being it all end up being the same. So the only thing so that balance. matters, right. the only thing that matters, is return to risk. And 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 the thing, if anybody doubts that, I always kind of tell tell people this uh, if I give talks I say you know if you want to do you want to double your returns I can give you a foolproof way to double your returns and all you got to do is just double the position size of every trade you do now is that going to make you twice as good of a trader no it hasn't no. changed you at all it's just it just means that you're going to lose twice as much when you're losing and if you can do that then you know that's fine but uh, bottom line it's exactly the same track record so um, all that matters is a return to risk I think just looking at pure return is kind of irrelevant. I've been mentored by many successful traders, and you know, I, I I treasured many of the tips, many of the directions, uh, much of the education from these traders. And you know, with uh, what you have done, you've written books and you've had a lot of interviews uh, with a lot of traders. Uh, you know, the list: Richard Dennis, Paul Tudor Jones, uh, Ed Sakota, Marty Schwartz, who my sister was his SP phone clerk for many years. Um, Boy, that had to be a tough job. What I want to ask you about uh, the interviews that you had, the opportunities uh, to talk to a lot of these traders, to pick their brains, um, what interview impacted you the most and why? Well, you know, basically, as far as favorites, um, insofar as have any favorites, um, I would say you can usually tell by what the first chapter is because uh, and that's favorite. Not say, that's a favorite in that I think that the interview is just has a lot of interesting stuff in it. It doesn't mean sure. that, uh, it's necessarily the most meaningful, but it's the one that has the best combination of of both advice and good stories, and it just makes good read. Um, there's one exception to that, I think, in hedge fund market wizards, which is the last normal format. You know, the question answer. Now, and then summary, introductory and summary, the standard format I've used for my Mark Wizard books. Uh, so, you know, that's that's how I would answer what the favorites were. Um, as far as my most influential, it's hard to say. Um, they're, they, it's kind of cumulative. I mean, just the so many traders harping on risk management and different ways of doing risk management. All of those basically had an influence. Uh, if I, uh, if I think of this, the line that I like to quote as maybe the most meaningful to me in terms of risk management, because it's literally one sentence and really did affect the way I trade, uh, is, and I regret it when, when, when I don't do that, is know where you're going to get out before you get in. Uh, and that was a piece of advice by, by Bruce Kovner. Um, so I guess, you know, if any single sentence in all the Market Wizard books impacted me most, that's probably that line, uh, because I think it is just such a such a terrific piece of advice, uh, and it would save a lot of people a lot of heartache and money if they followed it. Right, you know, a lot of traders come into the trade day, and uh, you know, the mentality is, how much money can I make? 
you know, the thing is, they're looking at it all wrong. It's you got to ask yourself the question, how much money can I afford to lose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why you figure out you figure out. Uh, and it's not so much not only how much money. And this is a this is a point that uh, one of the people I one of the hedge fund managers I interviewed in, uh, in hedge fund market wizards, Colin Moshe made. And he said, it's not, you know, people actually get this wrong. They decide that they, knowing how, how, much money you, how much money can you lose is an important question, but they go, but they, it's in the wrong sequence. So he said a lot of people will, will decide how much they can lose. They have got a normal trading size. And so that then they will determine their stop by, you know, uh, how many, you know, contracts or how many shares, depending on what they're trading, you know, can, uh, uh, no, sorry, not how many contracts, how many shares, how much, um, uh, what stop point, given given my you know given the order size, what stop point will hit that amount? And his point was that's all wrong. Uh, you know how much money you want to lose. Well, you know you shouldn't know what your trading size is. What you want to determine is separately where should the market not go if you're right, which is also a point that Kovner and others made. And once you pick that point, then you determine your trading size because you know how much you can lose. You know where you, where, where you where you want to have your stop to be meaningful, and that will determine what your trading size is. That should be the last thing that you figure out. Um, so it's a, so that's an important point, uh, uh, as is, of course, the whole idea of picking that point before you put on the trade, because, as Kovner advises, because then you have complete objectivity. It's like driving a car. Be safe, be a defensive driver. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really... Uh, uh, and it's also it takes a lot of emotional strain out of things, right? right. So, uh, but I mean, normally, normally, uh, if I put on a trade uh, at the same time I, I put on a trade, I will have a stop to that trade because <laughs> uh, I've decided. Well, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm buying or selling here, and then the stops here, and that's it. And then I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry is the market going against me or not because there's a stop there, you know, and I, it's a stop that I pick before I put on the trade. And if that stop gets hit, gets hit, one thing for sure, whether the trade works out long run or not, my timing sucked. You know, right. I was wrong. No, bottom line. So either the trade was completely wrong, or or um, or it's just my timing was off. But either way, I was wrong, right? So, but uh, so I don't have to um, kind of uh, agonize about it uh, or worry about it because. Well, if it's going to go against me, it'll, I won't be around too far, too long to have it do too much damage. And uh, it'll be pre it's predetermined. So it does take a lot of the, uh, the strain out of it. Um, and, yeah, so that's I, I think that's that's good. That's good advice for anybody. Right. I, I'm allergic to financial pain. So uh, <laughs> same thing. You know what? I'm not going to stick around. Um, now, some of the performances in, in, in the books of the the traders, what makes these traders special? Well, I mean, there's no question. I mean, they're, uh, you know, first of all, these traders, for the most part, I always try to get people who have longer term rack records and and sometimes very long records. But uh, also their their performances are so far from from uh, from normal that it's. It's, you know, it's, it's not, it, you just don't get that by pure luck, right? So, um, and what makes them, what makes them special is, well, it's different than every case. If it's somebody like Thorpe, he's, he's, he had the combination of strong mathematical ability, uh, combined with creative insight, uh, into markets and was able to combine those. Uh, if it's somebody like a Marcus, uh, 
he's just somebody who has great intuitive trading sense. Uh, somebody who could look at a market and it's a hundred fundamentals and kind of can pick out the fundamental that is going to drive the market. Uh, so, um, it, it really depends on the person. He, each person has a different talent and, um, then that's why that's a, that goes to the methodology they end up using. Okay. Now, coming up in 2019, right? Market Wizards is going to have its 30th anniversary. Is there anything special planned for this? Uh, no, <laughs> there isn't. Uh, there'll be a new, um, there'll be a new, uh, audio version of it. Uh, tell us about will... it. Tell us about this audio version. Well, first, you know, the, um, so, uh, the Marker Wizard books, they all have, uh, they have all, all have audio versions. And, uh, I didn't have con control of any of them except one. Uh, actually, the hedge fund market wizards one is good, uh, the, but the one I had control over was the uh, new market wizards one, and uh, that my agent got me the right the audio rights back, so I was able to use uh, ACX, which is part of uh, Audible, and you the what I it's kind of neat you you kind of uh, put out a a file you know, some some text for people to to. Uh, apply and uh to audition for it and so so i put it posted and like within two three days i had like 40 40 auditions for you know for narrating you know of, of the sample i provided and they were and, and they were like almost all good i, I would say i would say 90 percent of them were at least good or better you know mm -hmm. so it made it hard but so i then i i started listening to some ones which were really exceptional i got it down to like 10 and and, and by the way i pulled the I pulled the uh, the thing off the side because I didn't want to get any more. It was like being, you know, I just couldn't stand to to have to go through any more of them. So I had more than enough good ones. So I got it down to ten, and I sent it to about ten people that I knew uh, who would, you know, uh, these were people like who did their own podcast, like Mike Covell and uh, or Trey, you know, people people that I, you know, that had some reason. Uh, I had a cousin who's in public relations, et cetera, et cetera. So I I got an eight out of ten picked this one guy as number one or two out of the four. I sent to a sample of the four best ones that I that I, I thought, and so I took this guy and he did a phenomenal job. So uh, the original Market Wizards uh, narration is okay, but it's really I think way inferior to to what this what this guy did with New Market Wizards. And awesome. so um, so I've been trying. I, you know, publishers are so difficult to deal. With. My agent's been like going. I said, look, I'll pay for the I'll pay for the narrator. I'll do just. Give me the rights, you know, give me the rights to do. So just, just six, seven months trying to get them to give me, you know, oh, give it an amendment. Right. And we're you know, like, we're like one line away and I'm still waiting for weeks for that. I got the narrator ready. So this, uh, but they've agreed in the principle. I just got to get the final paper to sign off and then I've got it all, you know, then, and, and this fellow is so, the, he's so diligent that he, he actually will listen to and find, you know, I'll look at the if the way there are traders who have some something on some YouTube there right some captured in some YouTube thing or or uh, or they listen to the audio that I can provide. So he tries to get not, he's not trying to copy the voice so much as try to get the nature the 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 characteristic of the person. He's an actor, so he kind of so he, the thing that's so great about it is that you know he the different people sound different and uh, right. it's so way superior than what was done with with the original now. The interesting thing was that Market Wizards has always been the best selling of the of the Market Wizard books. First sure. one, I guess. And and New Market Wizards does fine, but still not as well, good, you know, still Market Wizards.
is always outselling. Interestingly, once I had this audio of new market wizards, it was dramatically outselling market wizards in audio. So it was, you know, in Kindle and hardcover, softcover, every other version, market wizards were selling better. But in the audio, the audio that, that I produced uh, with uh, with uh, DJ Holt, who's the narrator, um, that audio was outselling substantially the, the market wizards audio. So I've been trying to get the right, you know, getting the agreement, which I'm very close to getting. And once I get that, he's so set to narrate it. Uh, and so he'll do the narration of market wizards and it will be a treat. Uh, cause he's, he's just phenomenal. And, uh, and actually I'm looking at, I would look forward. I don't read my own books again, but I've kind of heard them through the audio for audio. And I actually, Myself would look forward to hearing what he does with my own book. Awesome. So, so you passed on Mor- you passed on Morgan Freeman. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I he didn't audition. Uh, I I do like Morgan Freeman. Morgan I Freeman. I would have considered him, but uh, he didn't audition. <laughs> All right. A uh, couple more questions here now. Uh, Jack, I want to ask you about your take on the newest and hottest investments going forward. There's a lot going on. You know, we went through the dot com, and now we've seen Bitcoin uh, yep. run, uh, run the scale, pull back. Uh, it seems like it's a little. Uh, ever since uh, the exchange got involved, it's a little regulated a little bit. Um, yeah. What's what do you think might be some of the newest and hottest investments going forward here? Uh, I don't know if it's hottest. I, I think the standard standard investments will remain and remain the key ones. As far as uh, all the cryptocurrencies, um, I think well, probably a lot of them will go to zero. I'm almost sure. Um, I, as far I, my my initial inclination was to think it's all you know when I saw when I see a market go from a thousand to a twenty thousand um, in one year. My initial from all these years in the markets, my initial my initial impression is you know. Uh, it's a bubble, you know, um, and, you know, and, and given nature, I, I guess it's still that. And I was I was tempted. With, I, I honestly seriously thought about going short the first night when when it started trading on futures. But I said, now, nah, what do I, I really, really don't know. Anything. I, you know, I, I said, no, nah, I'm not going to sell into. So I, I, I mean, if I was going to do anything, I, I was tempted because I thought that it's. A, but and of course, it's going down a lot since then. But the one thing, the only qualm I have about it being a you know being you know a complete bubble is that it has a function in the uh, black market uh, both you know both for stuff like illicit drug trading and also for ways for people from from corrupt countries to get their money out right. so uh, so it serves that function and that's what it's about it's not about you know block, I'm no expert I know nothing about cryptocurrencies but this little block blockchain I mean I I think that's all a bunch of malarkey that that's the reason why it's going up because banks can do their own blockchain. They don't need Bitcoin. They don't need the, the other crypto, you know, currencies. Um, I think it's all about that. Well, part of it, of course, is mania. People, you know, it goes up a lot. People buy stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but insofar as there's a legitimate fundamental reason, it's simply because it's a way, as I said, for, for, for black money to get out or move. And so because of that, it's hard to estimate what that market is. And so there could be a substantial market that needs that uses that type of uh, currency. And so that's if it succeeds or some of them succeed over the longer term, it's going to be I'm convinced it's that not not blockchain technology, uh, which which is which may be the future. But it doesn't. But that could be that doesn't mean that these these companies that the cryptocurrencies would be the ones that 
benefit from that because it could be copied. You know, so it's like the the internet is the internet was a giant development, but a lot of the early internet companies went bust. So they may have been totally right, but it doesn't mean that they're going to be the ones that make the money. You know, it was like leaving a class of second graders uh, alone for an hour and coming back an hour later and uh, just seeing what had happened. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was. It was well, you know, I had, I remember, you know, right, right around also the time the futures were starting. I had a, my cousin, um, my cousin I'm close with, has a nephew, and he had, you know, I mean, this is a kid who's, right. I, he works as a, you know, works for a hotel or something like that. I mean, he's not going to get a lot of money or anything. And so he had bought Bitcoin. She asked me what I thought. And I said, Frank, I said, look, you know, I, I gave it a spiel. I said, bottom line, I said, if you ask me, uh, and I think at that time it was like seventeen or 18000 I said, if you ask me, if I had to, if I was going to go one way or the other, I'd be short. I mean, that's all I can tell you. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It could go to 100, sure, yeah, but it could go to zero, too. You know, so I said, but I said, if you ask me what I, but so to me, what struck me was here's a kid who knows nothing about finance and he's buying Bitcoin. I mean, that can't be good. Yeah, my son did the same thing with Ethereum. I'm like, why don't you ask me before you went and bought it? But, but anyway, Jack, it, it, I want to ask you if you could go back into time. We had a time machine. You go back into time and you tell yourself one thing when you started out. What would that be? Uh, it would, you know, we we hit that line before. If I could just tell myself one thing, um, you know, it would be that know where you're getting out of every trade before you get in. Um, Make that decision before you get in, and uh, and trade only do those type of trades. And that would be if I could only give myself one bit of advice. That would be the advice. All right, and I hope that uh, those that are listening takes that bit of advice. And I didn't know that, right? I mean, it took me many, many, sure. many, many years, decades even to to fully appreciate that. Trial and error, you know, once bitten, twice. Well, shot. it's you know, it's I got it. Well, I guess I had the advice uh, from Kovner back in '89. And I, I don't remember when I, you know, when I started using it or whatever. But it, uh, but still, even then, was well into. I'd been in the industry for a while before that point. Right. Jack, last question: What's your favorite book? Who's your favorite author? Oh uh, well, favorite authors is is a different than my favorite book. Um, uh, well, favorite authors, I mean, a little number of them, uh, and it's a nothing. And I'm not it's not going to be financial books per se. Well, Michael Lewis, who does has written both. Financial, not financial, but Michael Lewis is definitely one of my favorite authors because sure. he does, he's just a terrific writer. Uh, and in fact, some book like The Big Short, which is, uh, you know, which is amazing because he takes the most esoteric financial topic possible and makes it compelling. So he's a wonderful writer. Anything Michael Lewis writes is great. Um, uh, one of my, uh, favorite authors is Bill Bryson, who's a humor writer. Is, um, Actually, the, so, well, they made a horrible movie out of it. They completely killed it. He has a phenomenally, you know, entertaining book called The Walk in the Woods about his, his, uh, doing the Appalachian Trail where he's out of shape and his companion is, uh, is his college friend, old college friend who's even more out of shape than he is. But that's just a terrific book. Uh, uh, but in the number, he's written a lot of, he, he has a book called The History of Every, Everything, which he goes through the history of science, but in an entertaining way. And sort of as a non-scientist, and it both is filled with a lot of information and lots of humor. Uh, so Bill Bryson is one of my favorite authors. As far as my favorite book, I have a single favorite book, and it's and again nothing to do with finance. Although I shouldn't say it has nothing to do. Actually, it has something to do with finance. It has something to do with life. It's a book called Endurance 
uh, written by fellow Alfred Lansing in 1956, I believe. And it is a it is the narrative of the famous Shackelford uh, ex- expedition mm. where uh, where he and his crew got got trapped in the ice, nice. right? And how they you know and what happened in the subsequent years. And it is a phenomenal story. Um, and that book does a great job of it. Uh, and it, it is, you know, just testament, you know, testimony also to human strength and confidence in nature and so forth. Uh, but that, that is probably my, that's one book I probably have read a few times. And it's just, if, say, I have a book that's my single favorite book. Fantastic. Jack, I really want to say thank you very much for being with us. I really hey, sure. appreciate it. And, uh, all the best. Keep us posted, uh, when this, uh, when the release, for the audiobooks, are going yeah, to be, we'd like to uh, yeah, share uh, that with the audience. Yeah, also. so I think if I, if I can get the uh, publisher to get the final contract, you know, the amendment done, uh, the narrator should probably be able to wind it up in a few months. So I would expect, I would expect it'll probably. And I have a, you know, uh, I will tweet, uh, I will tweet uh, announcements uh, to to the effect of when it's coming. Fantastic. And, uh, and I, what I would expect though, that it'll be available. Say by the fourth quarter, sometime in the fourth quarter would be my guess, which would be kind of right in time for the 30th anniversary. Although I didn't make that connection until you asked the question. <laughs> there you go. We're doing our homework here. We're doing our homework, Jack. <laughs> all right. Well, Jack, all the best to you. And uh, I hope down the road I can give you another call and do another sure. uh, podcast with you. Loved it. Yeah, sure. It was fun. All right. Okay. Th- Good speaking with you. Take care. Thank you, sir. Take care, Jack. All right, Mike, what a great conversation with Jack. Uh, if there's one thing that came up over and over, uh, it was the Bruce Kovner's quote. Now, uh, you might have heard this already, but uh, know where you're going to get out before you get in. That's been said and uh, sort of termed differently, but all basically uh, as one understanding. Yeah, you know what? I think, uh, not I think, I know in my experience that it isn't getting in. That's the, the, the hard part is get, it's knowing when to get out right. and knowing when to get out. You could do that for anything, Eddie. You could look at your stock portfolio. When do I take profits? You could look at the crypto world. Well, am I in this forever? You could look at uh, trading in general day to day. I like this. Not, ha- not knowing where you're getting out, but you got into the trade. Uh, can set yourself up for a lot of, uh, discomfort, a lot of expectations that don't get met. And, uh, I thought that quote hit it right on home, hit it right home with a know where you're going to get out before you get in. Right. And that's what Jack, Jack brought that up. And it, one of the things here also is, uh, one of the neat things that Jack had the opportunity to do was actually sit down face to face with a lot of these great legends in the financial world uh you know asked him we talked about you know i asked him you know what was some of your favorite uh lines and favorite tips and favorite things and the thing is you know he basically said that there was a lot that uh, he absorbed and there, there was a lot uh that he took uh to a, a positive venue of trading from all these people and and the thing is I want to mention that if you have not read the book, it's probably a, a very good idea. Uh, it, it's good reading too. You sit back, relax, pour yourself a glass of wine, you know, um, 
and read these books. These books are great books, and Jack had a very, uh, very good opportunity uh, to talk to some of the, the the biggest icons in the business. Yeah, Jack got he had great insight, got received great insight from everybody in, in his history uh, in in the uh, financial world. I mean, there's a lot here. Take it all in, digest it all. Uh, there's a lot from this podcast that uh, that he just uh, did uh, with you, Eddie. That uh, I'm taking right now, and I'm taking home. I put it in my journal, and I, I read about it. It helps me become. Be Become a better trader. I think uh, we all need to be focusing on moving our ball down the field. The this uh, I always use the sports analogy: move the, move our ball down the field. So we're ever improving. And this this uh, session here uh, talked about basically uh, money management, trade management, knowing where you're gonna get out before you get in. Uh, that's good to know just about in anything in life, especially if you're uh, putting risk on the line, is knowing where you're gonna get out. Uh, so great stuff here. Great, great stuff. Right. And uh, let me add, of course, uh, I thought Jack's career was very exciting. It, 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 the career's not over. He is still pedal to the metal. He's got mm-hmm. more yep. ideas and uh, there's going to be more books and he's, uh, he's going to be doing the audio now. And, and, uh, yeah, I really got to give the man credit and, uh, high respect and i really hope that we can get him back on here again for another podcast i hope so too he's a great thought leader all right mike i appreciate you for being with us here and joining me today it was a pleasure as always my friend eddie horn thank you very much all right traders as always thank you for spending time with us please give us some feedback on any of our interviews at limit up at topsteptrader.com and if you got some time Come on, you got some time. Please go to our iTunes and leave us a review. Thank you so much. See everyone next time. Mike, take care. See you, Eddie. All right, bye-bye. Futures and Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.